Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. This is not the time for waterworks, y'all. I have, I have words in front of me. <laughs> God is good. You know, marketers, do I have any marketers in here this morning? Nobody, that's great. Well, if you were, <laughs> marketers like to have memorable slogans, you know? They like to have things that are catchphrases that really get you. Like they get a hook is kind of what they're looking for. It would be a symbol of their product that they're trying to sell you, something snappy. It helps you remember it, something that's an easy get. For example, and this is an audience participation part of this morning. Are you all ready? Let's see if you can identify these. Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Very good. Very good. Uh, How about this one? It's everywhere you want to be. Visa. All right. Not so good on the second one. How about this one? The ultimate driving machine. BMW. It's exactly right. Here's one. Just do it. There you go. It keeps going and going and going. Energizer. How many of you also probably pictured the bunny when I was doing that? Can I see those hands? Zoom, boom, boom. All right, here's one more for you. You're in good hands. There you go. Now, I'm going to be sending letters to all of their marketers and let them know how you did this morning. Uh, From what I can tell, the good people at Visa are probably going to be looking for new people. (laughs) It's everywhere you want to be. Who's that? Let me ask you a question this morning. If Jesus uh, had a slogan, what do you think it would be? I've I've given a little bit of thought of that over this last week. I I think it would be this, come and die. I think that would be it. Uh, Now, I will be fair. I I don't think that's a slogan that most people are going to be drawn to, (laughs) right? But I do think that that fits every part of the message that Jesus ever delivered. It fits him. It's a slogan, by the way, that most people were running from, to be fair, and no current marketer in their right mind would be, hey guys, let's get together for the business meeting because I have an idea. Let's tell everybody to come and die. I just don't think it would work. But if you think about it, the symbol for followers of Jesus isn't any better than a slogan like that because the symbol is the cross. It's an instrument of torture and death. So if you want to attract fans, using an image of brutal torture and execution is probably not the best place to start. Is that fair? Let me ask you this question. Do we have any baseball fans out there? How many Astros fans out there? Can I get somebody to drum on? I'm kidding. Sorry, sorry. So here we are in the throes of baseball season. I was reminded of this story. It goes back, you know, Babe Ruth, really one of the legends of the game. Uh, and if you look back, you know, with Barry Bonds and all that situation, you know, who's, who's the real home run champion? And we want to put an asterisk next to Barry Bonds' name. I remember when Bonds was like hitting all these home runs, there was a guy that was standing out in the outfield of one game and he was holding up a sign about Babe Ruth and he said, the babe did it on beer and hot dogs. <laughs> By the way, I'm not recommending that to anybody this morning, but they weren't wrong. That's exactly right. But Babe Ruth was a lot like, well, a lot of athletes. As they got a little bit further, in, as he got a little bit further into his career, he really wasn't as good as he was before. He just wasn't. 
And there was this story that came out of Cincinnati because the babe was striking out a whole lot more than he usually did. And he had his fair share of strikeouts. His play had deteriorated to the point that fans would even boo him when he was on the field. That's hard for us to imagine because for people that love baseball, you go, hey, you're booing the babe. I mean, he's one of the greatest of all time. We're a little bit removed from it, but they would boo him off the field. And there was this one time in Cincinnati that after striking out, the fans were booing him literally as he was walking off. And you can imagine what he was like with this great history. Uh, he was walking off the field in a pretty dejected state. But here's what happened. There was a small boy that was in the crowd. And the way they described it, tears literally started to run down the boy's face. And he jumps over onto the field and he runs out to the babe and he grabs a hold of his leg as Babe Ruth is walking off the field. Now, you got to imagine what Ruth was doing. Well, he, start, he smiled at the boy. He reached down and he took him into his arms and he talked to him as they continued to walk to the dugout. That's a pretty cool moment, don't you think? But here's the rest of it, though. When that happened, the booing that was happening across the stadium stopped. And instead, the people stood up and they were quiet, but they stood in tribute to what was one of the greats. Here's why I share this story with you this morning. It's because that's people. <laughs> I mean, that's us. That's us. One moment, we're cheering. The next moment, we're booing. I, just this fall, I was watching a football game. I'll leave the names of the teams out. I don't want y'all to feel marginalized or anything this morning. But there was a team that was very clearly supposed to win the game, and the other team was actually winning the game. I kind of came in late into the game. And the team that was, was actually winning the game, they're horrible. I mean, they're, they're genuinely awful, but they're winning. And the, the camera would zoom over on this one fan, right? And they were up by like 21 points. And I'm like, whoa, I'm actually got to watch this. Y'all know how it is, right? And they zoom over to this one fan of the visiting team that's supposed to be getting just crushed. And he's like, yeah, he's the one guy standing up in the crowd, all right? Everybody else is sitting down. Here's the problem. The problem is the other team starts to come back. And the camera keeps going back to this poor guy. Frankly, I loved it. Uh, but they keep coming back to this guy. And next thing you know, the game is tied. What do you think that the reaction of that guy was? Well, as they were looking at him, he's, he's like, look around going, this is what we always do. Just like that. I mean, just a little bit ago, he's standing up and taunting everybody. The next thing you know, this guy's sitting there going, this is what we, all, we always crash. How many of you are people like that? <laughs> Come on now. We're in church. We don't lie here. <laughs> One moment they're standing for Babe Ruth in a respectful tribute. The next, some people are nowhere to be found. And the same thing, by the way, happened to Jesus. They cheered as he entered Jerusalem. Five days later, same people crucify him. Is this fair? We're a fickle bunch. Is that fair? I mean, I'll do it with my sports team. I'm an Aggie. A lot of you know that. I'll do the same thing. What is going on? Matter of fact, just yesterday, I turn on the baseball game. You know, I wonder how we're doing. We're up six to three. And I'm like, yeah. And the one inning I watch, we get down nine to six. And I'm like, you know, boop. And I turned it off. You know, I looked at my daughter and I just said, you know, you know why we're losing? It's because me. It's because I was watching. I was a pitcher in baseball. We're just like that. Right? That's why. And so I never, I literally never turned the game back on. I look a little bit later in the year. We beat Georgia 23 to 9. I was like, as the Lord intended. <laughs> 
How many of you people jump around like that? I did it yesterday. I did it just yesterday. You know what? The earliest followers of Jesus, not any different. Not any different. And honestly, not even different with Jesus himself. It's one thing when you're doing it with football. It's another thing when you're doing it with baseball. It's another thing when you're doing it with the risen Lord. Let me, let me give you an example. In Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16, it says, One of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I'll deliver him? That's Jesus. What are you willing to give me if I'll deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's a very famous part of Scripture. Uh, Some people see Judas as the Vladimir Putin of the Bible. Is that fair? You know, every time you see his name, you kind of hiss at him a little bit. He's the bad guy. He represents everything that is wrong. When Jesus, by the way, said that someone would betray him, nobody in the group thought it was Judas, though. Did you know that? Not one of them actually thought that it would be Judas. And it's because he was one of the most respected of the disciples. After all, he was the money guy. As the money would come in, they handed it over to Judas. They respected him. Notice the disciples' reaction to Jesus. They were asking this, one of you is going to betray me. They were like, is is it me? You know what they never said? Bet it's him. I bet it's that guy. They never actually said that. J.D. Greer made an interesting observation. He said, this is why Judas is, well, like us. Jesus said to the disciples, one of you will hand me over. In other words, one of you is going to sell me out. Basically, one of you is going to leave me for the right price. But so before we beat up Judas too much, Jesus said to the entire group, you're all going to fall away. He said it to the whole group. Now, they may not have sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but they all had their own price on what they were willing to do to follow him. They all had their limits. Peter, just so you know, the most outspoken of all of the disciples, you probably know that. Did you know that denying him was still in his heart? It was still there. The question isn't, do you have a price? You do. The question is, what is your price? That's the one that only you can answer this morning. I'll follow Jesus when, but I won't follow Jesus when. In other words, spiritually, many of you are like me yesterday afternoon. You saw something that you didn't like and you went, boop, and you turned it off. What's your price? But I want to give you some good news in all of this. You've probably seen this. There's a verse that you've seen even in football games. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How many of y'all remember John 3.16 guy? You remember that? You, you go back to some older football games. And it was the guy with the rainbow wig that was real bushy. And he would always hold up John 3.16. And his hope was, is that as the, the camera was, would pass by, somebody would see it maybe at home and go, I wonder what that says. And then maybe they would go into their Bible or they'd pull their phone out, right? And they would look it up and read it. And they would see, for God so loved them that he gave himself for them. You would see that all the time. You know what you see a whole lot less? Is Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I'll admit I have never seen that at a football game. Not one time have I seen it. But I have seen John 3, 16. Here's why I give you these examples is because all of these things for all of these things can give us a word of caution this morning that we're more caught up in a Christian subculture than we are caught up in Jesus. And that's a word that's a word of warning from Jesus himself. Uh, I mean, you can belong to to a subculture and not actually be following Jesus at all. 
You could be just following people, for example. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book oh, about 10, 12 years ago called Not a Fan. And he was asking this question, what are the differences between a person that is a fan of Jesus and a person that's actually a follower of Jesus? Remember Jesus' word. He said, follow me. It becomes your way of life. It becomes your flow. It becomes what you are. Not just, hey, there's just some things I want you to believe about me, but follow me. Here's what Eidelman says, and he draws it from John chapter 6. It's a story that you might be familiar with. There's a large crowd. Thousands of people are listening to Jesus as he teaches near Lake Galilee. At the end of the day, Jesus decides to feed them because he's like that. And you know the story. He takes a small boy's sack lunch, you know, like fish and bread, and he feeds over 5,000 men. Not, not counting the women and the children. He's feeding 5,000 men. That's pretty impressive, right? And when people saw what Jesus had done, they were impressed and they wanted to make him king on the spot. Now that's a guy that's worth following. Now imagine having a king that can multiply snacks and provide free food for everybody. Who's in? I'm a foodie. I'm in. I love it. I love to eat. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And here's what John says. And so he slipped away. He slips away. And the next morning, the same crowd, the crowd's like, where'd he go? How many of you would react that way? Where'd that guy go? You know, the guy that was feeding everybody yesterday, where'd he go? So they start to look for him. And they found him on the far side of the lake. And they asked Jesus for another buffet. But Jesus makes it clear that they're looking for the wrong thing. If you look at John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, here's what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Now, every parent in the room knows what that means, <laughs> right? Dinner's ready. Everybody shows up, right? You, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. They had just witnessed a miracle, and here's what Jesus says. Yeah, you didn't catch that part, did you? Because you were busy with your snacks. We love to believe that if God just performed this miracle in front of us, we'd be like, whoa, now I'm in. He performed a miracle, and they're like, bread's good. They totally missed it. And Jesus says, you completely missed what I was doing right in front of your face. And so he goes on to say, but don't be so concerned about perishable things about like food. Don't worry about it. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. They were looking for a free lunch. Jesus says the buffet is closed because you missed the point. Stop thinking about food. Start thinking about something greater. What am I really here to offer you? today. And they continued to miss the point, kind of a slow group, something that I think we're all prone to, because guess what they did? They kept asking for food. I want to give you something else. Yeah, but what about the food? So when Jesus talks about the bread that God gives life to the world, they said, give us that bread every day. If you look at John 6, 35, Jesus replies like this, well, I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. And the crowd didn't like it. They're like, no, we want literal bread. That's what we want. And so they started to grumble. And suddenly, Jesus is what was on the menu. Things changed. They wanted real food. They wanted burgers and shakes, not spiritual talk about Jesus being the bread of life. And they're not happy. So rather than smoothing things out, which is kind of what you might think Jesus would do, I'm just going to, all right, everybody's getting upset, let's calm it down. But instead of smoothing it out, he actually makes it worse. Because here's what he says in, the, in chapter 6, verses 53 to 55. He says, well, I tell you the truth. 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can't have eternal life within you. Oh my gosh. I mean, who's this guy's marketing guy? He just made it worse. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. All right, they're done at this point. That finished them off. Not only was the buffet line closed, but now Jesus was talking crazy. He's talking crazy. But really what he was doing was he was talking about something new that God was doing. And they deserted him. Those who wanted to make him king yesterday walked away grumbling and unhappy. You know what I find interesting in this in John chapter 6? Jesus didn't chase after them. He didn't. He didn't soften the message to make it more appealing. Hey, kidding, guys. <laughs> All right, y'all come back. All right, I'll give you some bread and fish. He didn't, he didn't do it. More Happy Meals and ice cream. He didn't do it. it. It wasn't the size of the crowd that Jesus cared about. It was the level of commitment in the crowd that he cared about. He was identifying something about people. This isn't the only time that something like this happened, by the way. When crowds gathered, Jesus often said things that sent people home. For example, in Luke 14, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Think about it. Big crowd gathers and Jesus is over there saying, By the way, with the way that you love me, you got to hate grandma. <laughs> right? Compared to the way that you love me, your love for grandma is going to look like hate. And they're sitting there having to process what this guy is saying. Compared to the love that you have for me, the love for your mama is going to look like hate. Here's some things that Kyle Allenman pointed out. He said, I think we got some things to learn from John chapter 6 that are really important for us. And I want you to think about this this morning. Here's the first. Eidelman talks about fans and followers. And he says this. Here's what we learn. Fans are in it for them. Followers are in it for God. Fans are in it for them, and followers are in it for God. Fans want the goodies, followers want Jesus. The crowd wanted the happy meal, and when Jesus offered himself, they're like, that wasn't what I was here for. I want you to ask yourself a simple question this morning, but it's one of the most important ones you'll answer. Is Jesus enough? Is he enough? For these fans, it was about the lunch, what Jesus could do for them. You know you're a fan when it's really about you. And Kyle Eidelman is absolutely right. So that's first. Here's second. Fans come and go, followers stay. I told you earlier I'm an Aggie. We actually parsed these out a little bit. Uh, we have those that are two percenters and those that are people that really aren't Aggies even though they claim to be, but you know, you're too fickle to really fit, right? And then you have the hundred percenters. Apparently there's nobody in between, <laughs> right? Fans come and go, followers stay. Maybe this is why Jesus was never impressed with the size of the crowd and he really never was. He was never impressed with the size of the crowd. He knew that the crowd was temporary, he knew that there were fans, and he knew that most of them were fickle, and he was okay with that. He was identifying the people that were really committed. Fans are conditionally in, just so you know. Followers are all in. Fans are conditionally in, followers are all in. How about you? The crowds followed Jesus around for a day or two, and then guess what they did? Like, yeah, let's go back to our lives. It's what they did. But when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, here's what it says about them. And they left everything they left it. They were all in. That's a, that's a difference. Question is, which one best describes you? I want to break it down just a little bit more for you. When it comes to your relationship with God, and this is what I say in my home, this is what I try to say for myself, 
I really want God to be saturated in everything that I do. With the way that I love my wife, the way that I love my kids, the way that I do my job, I, I want God to be saturated in everything that I do. Um, and some days are better than others, right? To be fair. But we need to be reminded this morning that everything first is about God. A follower has an authentic relationship with God. You love God with all you got. This morning, I want to encourage you, love God with all you got. Follow the example of the guys before when he calls out Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. And it says, they gave it up and they were all in. Follow God. Second is about yourself. Something you need to understand. A follower is growing and becoming more like Christ. You will. It changes you. When you get to know the Lord, the first thing that changes is you. I was just sharing this this morning. When I was doing my doctorate at A&M, the guy that chaired my dissertation, I remember this one conversation with him, and it was, it was about the Lord. We, we went out, and it was one of the coolest conversations that I had, in all because all the other conversations was him ripping me to shreds, right? This one was a good one, because just with, without any prompting on my part, he started to tell me what the gospel of Jesus Christ was, and shared with me in that moment that another member of the philosophy department had led him to Christ when he was 35 years old. Isn't that an amazing story? And this is what he said. He said, I'd grown up in church. He'd grown up Catholic. I'd grown up in church my whole life. But that was the day that I said, I'm going to follow that man. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. He said, and the difference was, he says, I became something different. And I knew it. I could feel the difference when I literally said, you're the one that I'm going to follow. Jesus changes you. Your character is changing. You're becoming new. You're becoming a different person. You become more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient, and kind, and self-controlled. When it's God first, that's what happens to you. And then there's we. Then there's us. A follower is building healthy relationships with other people. Your relationship with God, it changes you, and the new you has better relationships with other people. It is the way it works. And then it changes the world because the message goes out. People can literally see the difference in you. And a follower uses their gifts to serve other people the way that Jesus served then. So I want to give you a challenge this morning. I want to give you a challenge. And the first challenge I'm going to give is to, fo- is to those of you that maybe some years ago you, you gave your life to Christ. And what you said was, I'm going to be a follower of you today. Look, I'm not beating you up today. I just want to ask a simple question. Are you? Are you? Uh, when I gave my life to Jesus, I was 11 years old, 1986. Y'all do the math. Right? I'm 46, all right? There are times that I look at and say, I need to get back to this. I need to get back. I want to give a, I want to give a challenge to you that maybe today is a time where you rededicate you and your home to Jesus. It will change you. It will change your home. Uh, I'm reminded of this story. During the Depression, Ira and Ann Yates were trying to scratch out an existence as sheep ranchers in West Texas. Some of you may know the story. Although Yates was a capable businessman, he wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to pay his mortgage. That's not good. So he was in danger of losing his ranch. And on a desperate hunch, he invited an oil company to explore his land for oil. They started drilling uh, the first well on October 6th of 1926. 23 days later, they hit a gusher. The next several wells were even better, and as I said, oil seemed to be everywhere. The Yates Ranch turned out to be sitting over one of the largest oil reserves in the entire world, now known as the Yates Pool, which has produced, it had produced well over a billion 
uh, barrels of oil, and they're like, there's at least another billion underneath there. And Mr. Yates owned all of it. Isn't it good to be Mr. Yates that day, right? The day he purchased the land, because I know you're wondering about this, he purchased it for $2.50 an acre. And he received in the purchase all of the oil and mineral rights, all of it. This guy was rich. The catch is before that, he had been living on relief. Literally a billionaire with a poverty problem, literally. What was the problem? Is he didn't know the oil was there even though he owned it. And I'm giving you this challenge for those of you that maybe some years ago or even a month or two ago, you gave your word to Christ that you were going to follow him. For some of you, you need to reclaim what it was. You're not experiencing God. You're not knowing God in this way. And there's so much more that you could have of him. I want to give you a challenge for you to rededicate yourself and your home to Jesus today. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says this, He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And for everybody that committed their lives to him some years ago, you say, amen. That is the hope of the world. And that was your hope. So here's a little bit of a conclusion for you today. Because this is the call of Jesus. Today really is a day for anyone. It's a day for anyone. Remember John 3, 16? It says, whoever believes. Whoever believes. Luke 9, 23, if anyone comes after me. That's anyone. That's you. That's you. I was thinking about, does that apply to Matthew, who I mentioned before, who was a tax collector, given April 15th was just a couple of days ago, right? Was it for him? And the answer was, it was for him. It was for him. What about Paul? You look over at Acts. This guy's murdering people. Was it for him? It was for him. Whoever believes and anyone that comes after me. I'm reminded of this this story. Eric Geiger was making a really important point, and it kind of caught me. Maybe you've pulled through a Starbucks, and you're there to get your coffee, or four bucks, as I call it, and you're there to get your coffee, and you get up to the window, and they say, the person in front of you paid for that. How many of you have had that happen? Can I see those hands? Actually, it's quite a lot of hands. All right. Something to think about. In that moment, your heart is probably filled with gratitude. Is that fair? I mean, you're sitting in your car, and you're going... I didn't deserve that. I mean, that was just a genuine act of of kindness. See, that's what grace does to you. That's what grace does to you. Or perhaps you've attempted to hand your credit card to a server at a restaurant to pay your bill and before it arrives, and and you only learn then that somebody had already covered it. How many of you have had something like that happen to you? Can I see those hands? And how many of you felt tremendous appreciation? You're sitting there going, God, you didn't have to do that. That that was incredibly gracious of you. Because I know I've felt the same way. The question becomes, how do you respond in a moment like that? And the theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones gives some insight that I want to share with you this morning. Here's what he said. He said, we don't know how to respond to the statement, your bill has been paid until, until we know how big the bill is. The size of your bill determines how you respond to someone who paid for it. You only know how to respond when you understand the size, the scope, and the magnitude of the bill. And that's true, isn't it? So while, honestly, while having coffee has, you know, having my coffee paid for, I'm like, man, that is really nice. There's kind of been a limit on the way I've responded to it. Usually it's been something like, hey, thank you so much. I didn't necessarily run the person down or mow their yard, right? I didn't do anything like that. It was just a thank you was enough. But I want to remind you of something that we're, we're remembering today. 
And it's that we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. So here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Our worship and our adoration should be in proportion to our understanding the magnitude of the debt that he has paid. Word of encouragement, everybody. May we not live as though he only covered the cost of a small debt. Let's don't live like that. So who's invited to Jesus? The answer is all of us. It's every single one of us. Young person, you bet. Old person, you bet. Rich person, absolutely. A poor person, absolutely. Alcoholic, absolutely. How about a clean person? Absolutely. And you're sitting here this morning, maybe you weren't murdering people like Paul, and thank you for that. (laughs) Or maybe you're not ripping people off like Matthew was as an IRS agent. Some of you felt that this week too. But they have a story, and so do you. So do you. It's not a matter of, do you have a story? It's a matter of, what is it? So, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, pastors, I'm just letting you know, we have some crazy experiences over the years. And there was a pastor that shared a story that I want to share with you. When I say some crazy experiences, let me just give you one on me. I literally had a woman get in a casket with her dead mother. That wasn't normal, by the way. But this guy said, I've got one for you because we were actually sharing stories. I've got one for you. I was like, okay. He said, well, at least I've heard it. I was like, okay. Here's what he said. There was a woman in a church that had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And the doctor had given her three months to live. And she knew that there was, there was really a crunch in time. She knew that. And so she wanted to make sure that everything was prepared and ready. So she went to the pastor and said, I want you to, to help me through this. And he was like, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. So they thought through basically everything that's the normal stuff that you think through. She talked about the stuff that she wanted in her service, the songs that would be sung, uh, the scriptures that she would like for him to read. Um, she even talked to him about the outfit that she wanted to be buried in. She wanted to be buried with her favorite Bible. I mean, everything was in order. And he was starting to walk out of, of the home for the visit. And she said, oh, wait, there's one more thing. He goes, okay, well, what is it? And she said, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And he was like, I mean, we can do that. But it's a little different. Well, why do you want to be buried with a fork in your right hand? And she said, because of what it reminds me of. So see, I, I grew up in church, and it was pretty common that we would have potlucks. She had to be Baptist. Had to. Because we know how to throw down with the grub. Uh, so we would have these huge potlucks, right? So we would sit at the table as families and with, with church members. How many of you have done something like that? I mean, I have. And she said, here was the thing. Inevitably, we would get to the end of the meal, and my mom or my dad would lean over and say, keep your fork. Now, y'all know what that means, right? Y'all know what it means. Because when they said, keep the fork, here's what she was telling her pastor, is because something better was about to show up. Something better was coming. She said, as soon as mom or dad said, keep your fork, I knew that it was going to be something like chocolate cake or it was going to be a baked apple pie. Something was coming. And it was better than everything that I'd had before. She goes, so I want you to put a fork in my right hand. She goes, the other hope is this. 
is that when people come and see me after I've died, they'll see the Bible here, they'll see a fork in my right hand, and I want all of them to say, what's the fork for? And I want you to tell them, because the best just came for her. So maybe you're here this morning. I want want to give two challenges this morning. For believers, today is a day of renewed commitment. I'm going to give you some time here in a second to talk with the Lord. It's a day of renewed commitment. It's what it is. But if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, there's something that I want to share with you, and I'm I'm going to try to make it through it. I was struggling when I started. I'm going to struggle when I end, but it's okay. I'm fine with that. We have two families in our church who lost loved ones this week. Um, Good families, good people. This is some of the tough stuff of what it means to be a part of a church family. And visited with both of them, but yesterday, as I was just going through the Word, there was something I wanted to share with them, and I'm going to share it with you now. And for those of you that that don't know Jesus, I want you to understand why today means so much to us, and it's something I'm going to share with you here. Here's what I said. I said, "I'm I'm sure you're with your family. I didn't want to disturb anything. I just want you to know that I love you. And I'm sorry for your loss. I'm here for you if you need anything at all. And then I gave them this quote. Our bodies are buried in brokenness. But they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness. But they will be raised in strength. That's what today is about. And today is for anyone. For all who receive him. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. And so I want to lead us just in a time of prayer. And I want to to speak, if you'll allow me, just for a moment. For those of you that came in here and you don't know Jesus, your relationship with him begins by talking with him. You talk with him. This is the beautiful thing about confession. It gets it out It's over with. It's addressed. And what Scripture tells us is grace is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. It's enough. All that Jesus wants to offer you today is himself and all the promises that come with it. But don't come to him just for the goodies. Come to him because he is the good. He's the good. It begins with confession. And then you're joined up and brought up into something that's bigger than yourself. And so I want to lead us in a time of prayer. For everyone who's ready to receive, I invite you to pray this with me. And if all would just bow their heads and close their eyes, just to remove any distractions, that's all this is about, is no distractions. If you're ready to receive Christ, I invite you to pray this with me today. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I am. And I'm in need of a Savior. This morning, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to wash me and to make me clean, to make me whole again, and I'm committing my life to you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you fall into the first category, you know, someone that maybe long ago you told Jesus, I'm following you. Today, I'm asking you just to be honest. Are you? Are you? And for you to have a little bit of time, you can come to the prayer rails, you can sit where you're at. I, I don't care. 
but that you can go before the Lord and you can lay some things at his feet. Because God in his goodness saw fit to give us his son. We want to give him our life in return. He deserves absolutely nothing less than that. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.